we are here with yeah. Rick and Kay Warren, the founders of Saddleback Church, which is one of the great churches in the world. Not only one of the largest, but one of the most amazing churches in the world. And um, out of that came the Purpose Driven Life, which has sold over 50 million copies. It must be the, if not the fastest ever selling book in the world, very close to it. Kay, you're, you're a hero of mine. You're a Bible teacher. You, um, you do all this awareness of mental health. You came and spoke at our um, leadership conference in 2014 on Say Yes to God. And it was the most phenomenal talk. Your whole time with us had such an impact on our church. And you've been through your own struggles. You, you had cancer yourself. You've been through major um, family trauma. And you're still here. You're still preaching, you're still encouraging, smiling. Um, teaching, doing amazing things. And we, we're just in awe of you both. Now, uh, you know, everyone looks at you and they think, um, you know, you're, it's all success, success from what, all from glory to glory, one one triumph after another. But last time um, you were, when you were at the leadership conference, it was one year. It was like the one year anniversary of what you describe as the worst day of your life. Yeah, yeah. The the death of our son Matthew uh, by suicide was truly the this yeah the hardest thing we've ever gone through with the very worst day of our lives. Um, I can't, it, almost anything else that happens to me since then feels like small potatoes mm -hmm. compared to yeah. the loss of our son. Yeah. So um, that has been really the work of our lives yeah. in the last seven years is learning how to live again, um, finding how faith and life um, come together, um, how we can not only survive, how we can not only our family survive this devastating loss, but to learn to thrive again. When you go the, through these kind of things, you're able to articulate and help people who are going through similar experience. Grief changes you. Um, deep and serious grief changes you. We're not the same people that we were, you know, seven years ago. Um, uh, probably a year after Matthew died, probably nine months after he died, uh, I saw someone in, in the parking lot of the, of, the, of the grocery store and she said, you know, I'm just, I'm praying for you, but I'm just, I can't wait for you to get back up, you know, on the stage. Um, I just really miss, you know, I really miss um, hearing from you. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we're just all praying for you to get back up there. And I, I looked at her and I said, it hasn't even been a year. Yeah. I'm not the same person. The person yeah. that I was on April 4th, 2013 is not the same person I was on April 5th, 2013. And that day mm -hmm. is gone. She's never coming back. Mm -hmm. um, but what I, and that's true. It, that kind of grief alters you. Um, and I think you have to come to a place of, of acceptance of knowing that um, grief has a way of you, taking you from this place to this place. Um, I, I think the, the, probably the most hopeful thing I can say to someone in very fresh grief and loss is that while life will never be the same again, it can be good again. And, hmm. and I first heard that um, soon after Matthew died. I didn't believe it. I read it in a book. I wrote off in the margins of the book, can this really be true? Because hmm. at that moment, it didn't seem possible that life could ever be good again. Um, but seven years later, I can say, yes, life is very different, but life is good again. And, and I've learned how to live with what, what I call wonderful, terrible. 
um, people will say, well, how are you? And I say, well, the most honest thing I can say is if I'm wonderful, terrible. There is so much in my life that truly is wonderful. I mean, I'm looking outside today and it's a sunny day here and the sun is shining and there, the breeze is blowing and there are clouds. It's, it's a gorgeous world that we live in. I have a, a great marriage. I have wonderful children that have survived. I have grandchildren. I have work that I love. There is so much in my life that is wonderful. Mm -hmm. At the exact same time, there is this gaping hole where Matthew belongs, mm -hmm. and nothing and no one can ever replace that. Nothing can ever take his place, and I will miss him every day of my life. I will live with tears in my eyes until I see him in Jesus' presence mm -hmm. again someday. But I'm mm -hmm. going to live the rest of my life without my child. That it's terrible. It's like losing your right arm. If you if you lose your right arm, you're going to notice it's not there for the rest of your life. Now, for those, you asked Nikki, what, what do people say to someone who's struggling with a trauma or a grief and things like that? Well, the first thing they need to understand is there's no time limit on grief. There's no expiration date. Uh, you don't get over it. You get through it, but you don't get over it. If your arm is gone, you will miss that arm the rest of your life. If Kay died, I would miss her the rest of my life. Those are irreversible yeah. losses. Exactly. But when you say, what do you say to someone? Sometimes it's best to say nothing. It's the ministry of presence. Yeah. One of the things I've learned, and I teach people now, is that the deeper the pain is, the fewer words you use. Mm -hmm. The deeper the pain, the fewer words you use. For instance, if somebody's having a bad hair day, you want to sit down and talk to them for 30 minutes about it, that's fine. But if <laughs> Just lost a family member, for instance, to suicide. You show up and shut up. There's nothing you can say, but what they need is your presence. When when uh, Matthew died and we were at his home and this trauma thing, well, our small group showed up on the front door where we were standing outside while the police were inside putting my son in a body bag, and we were sobbing. Uh, but the, the men in my group came up and just hugged me, and the women in the group came up and just hugged Kay. And then they said, we're not going to leave you alone tonight. Mm -hmm. We're coming to your house. There was nothing they could say but just having people with you when you're grieving. And they slept on the couch and in the, you know, in the kitchen and wherever, and they, they just were there. It is the ministry of presence. So a lot of people just go, I don't know what to say, so I don't make contact. Make contact and right. say nothing. Just that there's, there's only one appropriate thing when somebody's going through grief. I'm sorry for your family's loss. Yeah. Mm. I'm sorry for your life. That's all you need to say. And if you haven't seen somebody in six months since the trauma happened, and you see them in a grocery store, you wonder, are they still thinking about it? Of course they're still thinking about it. And, but they're not thinking about it every minute. But if you walk up and say, I'm sorry for your loss, that's all you need to say. And then you can start talking about something else. But at least acknowledge the big elephant in the room. Mm -hmm. and so I'm saying to people, just be there with people. It's the presence principle. Mm -hmm. And you've talked. Oh, sorry, Kate. Kate, Kate. Yeah, I'm just gonna say we don't we don't know how to grieve very well. None of us do. Particularly we're, men. We're on well, and I think in and uh, Christ followers are mm -hmm. sometimes the church has not been very helpful in um, grief we're, we're just expected to move on maybe we have our two weeks of mourning period or whatever and then we're we're supposed to go on and, mm -hmm. and that just isn't the way grief really works grief will catch up with you you can try to push push it aside you can try to pretend it's not there but it will catch up with you eventually and that's 
okay. There, there should be no shame for experiencing deep mourning. It says, I loved this person. And so deep grief. And I, I think we forget that God is a God. He has emotions. God is an emotional God. And we are made in his image. And so when mourners are allowed to express grief, we're just really allowing people to be human, to be made in the image of God. This and is so a this huge point that Kay is saying here, is that the only reason we have emotions is God has emotions and we're made in his image. Now, the Bible says God gets angry. The Bible says God grieves. The Bible says God uh, uh, gets frustrated with mankind. Uh, the he, Bible, laughs. he laughs. Yeah. He cries. And so there are no inappropriate emotions. What's inappropriate is stuffing it. I always say when you stuff your, swallow your emotions, when you stuff or swallow your emotions, your stomach keeps score. And so we (laughs) say, don't repress it. Don't suppress it. Express it and confess it. Tell God, you know, in the Psalms, there's a, for those who don't know the Bible, there are 150 Psalms in the Bible and these are psalms which express every emotion known to mankind. One third of them are called psalms of lament, which means they're about complaining to God. It's okay to complain to God. God, I don't like this. And God can handle that. like a little preschooler beating on the knees of a parent. You can handle that. Yeah, I, I, I found, we found great comfort in, in the arms of God. And that didn't mean that we were, as Rick said, it didn't mean that we were just, um, we were mad sometimes. I mean, you have every emotion. Honestly, we had prayed and believed that God was going to heal Matthew Mm -hmm. and Matthew wasn't healed here. Mm -hmm. And, and that left us very shaken. Me in particular left me really shaken for a while, but I, I took my, I ran to God in my pain and my sorrow, not away from God. Mm -hmm. And in, and in the, in the embrace of intimacy in, in the, in the arms of God, knowing he wasn't going to shame me or embarrass me for my anger, for my doubt, for my confusion. But in the safety of that embrace, I did feel there were many times I, I felt like I beat my hands on his chest <laughs> and, and asked the why question yeah. and how could this be and how do I go on and what does this mean? And, and so, but to do that in the safety of the, of the intimacy of relationship with God um, was a tremendous comfort. You know, uh, a lot of people who are in pain right now, even from loss in the COVID crisis, as we've talked about, mm-hmm. uh, it's okay to ask why. Even Jesus asked why on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So mm-hmm. if it's okay for Jesus, it's okay for you to ask that. But the real test is, what do you do when you go, don't get an answer? Because most of the why questions in life are not going to get answered on this side of eternity. In heaven, we will hear the answers. We will understand. But me trying to understand why everything happens in the world is like an ant trying to understand the internet. I don't have the brain capacity. If I could understand everything about God, I'd be God. But I'm not. And so I'm limited. But what I do, what I having pastored for 40 years and walked, I've stood at the bedside and the graveside of thousands of people as they were taking their last breath and, and watched their family and, and be, be buried. Uh, and what I've learned is that explanations don't comfort. What we need is the presence of God. We all think if I knew the answer to why, then I'd feel better about what I'm going through. That's just not true. If Kay were to drop dead tomorrow, 
And I knew the reason why. It wouldn't make it hurt any less. I'd still be in pain, even if I knew why she had died. What we need is not the explanation of God. What we need is the comfort of God. And as Kay said, and I don't know why this is true, but when we go through crisis, there are two things. You can run toward God or you can run away from him. And I've seen it both. And I'm going, what sense does it make to run away from the one who can comfort you? But that, that doesn't make sense to me. Now, you two have been great champions uh, uh, around the whole issue of mental illness. Just say what you've learned about that and how we help. There are a lot of people right now who are struggling with degrees of, of mental illness. How, how, what have you learned about it and how can we help people in that situation? Well, first of all, it's real. I think that's probably the most important thing is that um, the brain is an organ in the body like any other organ and things can go wrong in our brains that can lead to mental illness. And um, so it's real, it's not a sin issue, it's not a faith issue, it's not something that, um, is for, that just weak people experience. It is a real illness, those are real illnesses. And then um, to know that it's common, um, it's not just the rare um, you know, family member or person. I, I think in the UK, it's probably one in four people you know, with severe, serious depression and anxiety. And yeah and schizophrenia and I mean all sorts so it's real and it's common but the really good news that we've learned is that it's treatable um, yeah. it's not some mysterious um, ailment that we don't know what to do there is a, a lot of good help for people with mental illness and fourth I would add to that the church is responsible for caring for people who live with mental illness mm -hmm. um, this is not um, an illness that we want to just leave to um, the government or to the medical professionals if you look at a person who has John professor um, dr. John Swinton um, there at the University of Aberdeen who I think is just amazing he, he taught me this to shift the way I look at it that if we say um, oh that's a person who has an illness then we're going to say, oh, the medical professionals should take care of that. That's nothing to do with the church. But if you turn it and put the emphasis on, oh, that's a person who has an illness, then suddenly that's in the purview of the church. Nobody cares for the person Souls. who cares for the soul mm -hmm. the way that the church does. Mm -hmm. So the medical community, government, they can't care for the soul. They can't care for the person. But we in the church can care for persons have illnesses. I'd say to anybody who is out there who struggles with uh, mental issues or has a fear of struggling with mental issues, check out HTB, Holy Trinity Brompton, because it's a church where it's not a sin to be sick, where your illness is not your identity, where your chemistry is not your character, where you'll be loved and valued. And I honor you, Nikki and Pippa uh, at HTB Church, because you know, as you know, this is uh, Mental Health Week in the UK, and, and your church has been at the forefront stepping out. We ought to be leading, and it, the church should be a safe place for people, no matter what your background is. You're, you're more than just a body, and you're more than just a brain. You are a body, soul, and spirit, and all of that needs to be healthy, and that's what the church does. We work on all three areas, and, and so let's hit it spiritually emotionally, relationally, physically, biologically. It's a complex issue because the Bible says you're a very complex person. Now you, you've had to struggle with, with grief and loss and, and of course coming through 
through cancer self care. But another thing that you you must have faced in a really big way is the issue of forgiveness. So how do you deal when when something is so traumatic in your life? How do you forgive? I have not ever felt anger at Matthew because I knew he was ill. I knew he had an illness. And um, so I have, even though his death devastated us, devastated our family, left repercussions that we'll live with the rest of our lives. I have not personally felt anger toward him. I have understood he had had an illness. Where I struggled actually was more in my relationship to God and, um, and, and believing that he was good in the face of what to me was such a painful circumstance. I held some unforgiveness for a while to people who I had expected to be there in my deep pain, and they just were nowhere. And sometimes I learned a little bit later they were in their own pain and needed to be going through some things. But whatever reason, uh, Kay mentioned three or four, and I just mentioned that one, you have to let it go because bitterness is worse than grief by far. Grief is, can be a healthy thing. Grief is a good thing. Grief is the way we get through the transitions of life. There is no change. There's no growth without change, no change without loss, and no loss without pain and grief. So mm-hmm. we're going to go through grief many times in life. But that, and that can be healthy, learning to grieve. If you don't let it out, then it's like taking a bottle of soda or Coke or whatever, shake it up, and you put it in the freezer. So at some point, it's going to explode and come out sideways. You've got to let that grief out. The best thing to do is, is grieve. And one of the things that we did that helped us uh, learn to forgive and helped us to let it go was a, a decision that Kay and I made together, and that was to not try to talk each other out of our pain. That a lot of times we try to cheer each other up. Grief is like waves. And one minute you go, I can handle it. Next minute you can't. Then I can handle it. Then you can't. You can go through those waves in seconds or minutes or hours or days. And, and, they, and there's no time limit on it. What a lot of people do is when somebody's in pain, they try to cheer them up. That's, not, that's the wrong thing. I had a well-known person in America ask me about this. And I said to that person, it's not your, he had lost a son. It's not your job to make your wife happy. It's your job to enter into her pain. Mm. Kay and I made a decision because our waves never match. Okay. And when she's in in, in grief, maybe I'm not and vice versa. We would simply walk up to each other and do this. Put put our arm around each other, pat, grab a handshake, a physical connection and stand there. Say nothing. Just stand there. And a, and a grief that is shared is cut in half. What I don't need you to do is try to cheer me up. But if I need to experience that at that moment, that actually made us closer in marriage after Matthew's death than we were before. A lot of, a lot of couples, they, because everybody grieves differently, nobody grieves the same. You have to give grace to, the, to your partner and everybody else. And in your family, everybody's going to grieve differently. And generally now... So many people, I mean, you, you've experienced grief and loss at about the most extreme that anyone can experience. But right now, a lot of people are going through, through loss, but at, maybe not at the same level, but it probably feels bad to them. It's like a loss of a job, 
loss of finances, loss of being able to hug your children uh, or your grandchildren or your parents. Um, mm. There's, there's, um, and maybe even you've got a relative who's in hospital and you can't go and see them. That's desperate. I've right. spoken to someone who said they're waving through the glass at a sick mother who's got COVID. It, it's tragic. When there's collective grief, like there is right now, when like it's not just we weren't the only ones. Everybody you know has lost somebody. Everybody you know has lost a job or is um, traumatized. traumatized. When there's that collective grief, there's not quite as much empathy to go around. And so if there ever was a time that the body of Christ, that we needed to, to support each other, um, with not through just our own grief, but through the grief of others, it is definitely um, at, at this time. Yeah, I, I would say to everybody who's listening right now, going through this crisis, you need to treat yourself and other people the way God treats you. So how does God treat you? With grace, with mercy, with forgiveness, with compassion. You need to show yourself compassion. Uh, you need to cut yourself a little bit of slack. You know, everybody has a, a, a bucket of how much energy they've got. And coming into COVID-19 pandemic, your bucket may have been full of emotional energy, physical energy, spiritual energy. You were at top. You're probably doing okay right now. But a lot of people came into this pandemic half full and their energy, their level is lower. And some people came into it totally empty. You know, we say, people say, well, we're all in the same boat in this crisis. No, we're not. We are not. We're all in the same storm, but we're in different boats. Some people are in a yacht. Some people are in a rowboat and some people are hanging on the driftwood. If you're homeless, how do you shelter at home? Yeah. So we're, we're all hitting, having this differently. But you show yourself grace. Be kind to yourself. If you get up in the morning, because every day this crisis goes on, it drains your reserves. It's draining your reserves a little bit every day, every day that this goes on. So if you get up in the morning, you have a good night's sleep, but two hours later you go, I'm exhausted. Well, welcome to the club. Okay, that's natural. You will not be able to operate at the same level of efficiency and effectiveness as you did before the pandemic because there's this constant drain on you from the crisis, all the changes that the world has gone through in the last 60 days. It's pretty amazing. And so we're all kind of still in shell shock. You need to be kind to yourself. Don't expect yourself to be at the same level of energy as everybody else. And then you need to be kind to everybody else too. And you need to treat them the way God treats you with grace, mercy, and compassion. So what difference does Jesus make to a person at this time? So somebody's watching this. This is, everybody's going through the same thing. You're, yes, everyone's going through the same storm. We're in different boats. But um, it's, it's affecting Christians, people who are not Christians. So what difference does it make to have Jesus on your raft or in your boat or, or in your yacht? Yeah. Here's the big difference. We have a God, and most people don't realize this, who doesn't watch us suffer. He suffers with us. This is the incarnation. This is the fact. Christ doesn't go, oh, I'm sorry, you're suffering. You see, uh, sympathy is saying, I'm sorry you hurt. Empathy is saying, I hurt with you. Compassion is saying, I'll do anything I can to stop your hurt. Repeatedly, the scripture says, Jesus was moved with compassion. 
I'll do anything I can to stop yours, even if it means going to the cross and dying for you, shedding my blood for you. So when, as a Christian, I just don't have a distant God up there who's watching the pain that we're going through. Where is God right now? I'll tell you where he is. He's, he's in all of the people showing love and compassion right now. He's working through his body, the church, and, and he's, he, he's everywhere. I, some a woman asked me, said, where was God when my son died? I said, he's the same place he was when his son died. Hmm. He was weeping. He was grieving. Hmm. He was angry at the sins of man and, and, and sad for all of the cause, uh, damage that it causes. So we can turn to a God who doesn't just watch us. He's with us. And he's not just with us. He feels our pain. That means you can tell him anything. That gives you enormous strength, emotional strength. If you don't have that relationship, you don't, to Christ in a personal relationship, you don't have uh, the conduit to both feel his compassion and you don't have the, uh, the conduit to feel his, his grace, which is the power we need to make it through the tough times. Mm -hmm. what, what difference has your faith made for you, Kay, going through all of this? I'm going through all that. You've been through cancer, the trauma of Matthew. Um, what difference has your faith made for you? I, I feel like I'm a person of hope in a new kind of way. Um, I, um, I have next to where I, I have a time every day where I just um, meditate and quiet, um, pray. And I have um, what I call my hope box. And mm. it's full of verses that give me hope. And I look at them often in the middle of the night because that's when I can't remember where they are. You know, <laughs> middle of the night, I can't think of anything. But in my hope box, they're written out on cards and, and they're verses that, that give me hope and a, and a future. And I have right next to it, what I, it's a little ceramic pot, and in it are all the questions I have about my life, about Matthew's death, about evil in the world, all the things that I don't know how to answer, and they're in my mystery pot, because I know that I will probably not find all those answers here on earth, but for me to build a faith that is genuine and real, it includes both hope and mystery, um, and I think every person who's going to have a robust uh, vibrant faith in God has to learn how to live with both hope and mystery. Um, hope that has never been tested, has never gone through cancer, has never gone through loss, <clears throat> has never gone through pain and suffering. It's just untested optimism. It's not very reliable. It's, it can be easily shaken. But, but faith that has been tested then turns into hope. And mystery, um, mystery without hope will leave you bitter. And, but a combination of mystery, I, I trust in a good God who will answer my question someday. Those two together, hope and mystery, have, have given me the ability to face whatever has come my way, um, to know that I, my faith is more solid than ever. The spiritual roots of my life have gone down deep into the goodness of God. And when cancer tried to yank out the tree of my faith, when suicide tried to, you know, yank out the tree of my faith, the roots held, but they held because I've spent my life sending them into the belief that God is good, even when I don't understand him, even when mystery remains. And so when I think of people who are in this period of time, we're alive in this period of COVID-19, 
God could have had us live at any other point in history, in the past or the future, but this is the moment where God has us. Mm -hmm. And so in this moment of COVID-19, God must want for us to develop the kind of faith that can survive mystery, that can live with mystery, and still be absolutely certain of the hope in a good God who is with us, watching us, leading us to a future where all those mysteries and all those sad things become untrue. So in spite of, or maybe because of, or in the middle of all of these things, as I choose to believe that's who God is mm -hmm. and put my roots deeper into him, I believe I have become more a person of hope mm -hmm. than ever. I would have been without those tests and those painful, painful suffering. And so what do you do each day, um, Rick and Kay? We heard a bit about your hope box, which is amazing, particularly in this time. But how do you sustain that faith? What do you, and do you pray separately? Do you pray together? How do you, what is, what's What are your like? daily routines? We'd love to hear. One of the things that I do, and I believe is start and end each day refueling your soul. Start and end each day refueling your soul. And I, I would suggest, particularly during the COVID-19 crisis, that you get a scripture, you get, some, get a Bible, and you put it by your bedside, and you leave it open 24 hours a day. Start with the book of Psalms, or start with the book of John, or Philippians, or something like that. Just pick a book. When I get up in the morning, and I've done this every single day since COVID-19 began, I get up in the morning, and I put my feet on the ground before I even leave the bed. I pick up that scripture because it's open. I find that if it's closed, I can ignore the Bible. But if it's open, I pick it up and I read a passage. And it doesn't matter how long you read. It doesn't matter how much you read. You just read until you get something speaks to you. And then at night, as I'm getting ready to go to bed, as I walk in, I go, oh, there's that open Bible. And I'll sit down and I'll pick up the next verse. And I'll just read a little bit. It's not like trying to read chapters and chapters you read until something speaks to you and you go oh i need to think about that one of the things you said um kay in the interview back in 2014 you use the expression that god is not helpless among the ruins which is just such um, a very powerful expression what you feel what was sort of going on with that what you feel has come out of the ruins um new life new life has, has come. Um, I, I could never have, um, I never could have predicted that there would be anything good that would come out of Matthew's death. And there, there is nothing good about his death in the sense of suicide is not ever good. It's, it's heartbreaking, it's tragic. crushing, it's tragic. Um, however, I have seen God bring new life. Of the people, mm. it's been stunning to me, the number of people who have said, I heard you tell Matthew's story, and I've seen how it has devastated your family. And I just want you to know I'm taking suicide off the table for me. That's no longer an option for me, no matter how bad my pain gets or my suffering, because I don't want my family or my friends to experience that. So I'm going to keep going and looking for ways to ease the pain. Well, if Matthew Matthew's death has actually saved people's lives. I, I would never, ever have predicted that something like that could happen. From his death is the, is the opportunity to even have this kind of a conversation to say, you can live again. You can find beauty again. Life can be good again. There is hope. 
Life is not over when you lose um, tragically. Um, and that brings life to people. And I just wouldn't have predicted it. We, we um, are on a walk and we saw um, a big oak tree in the area and, and the, the, a huge branch had fallen over. And so it, it's been hit by lightning or something. So it's, the branch is connected to the tree, but it's lying on the ground. And you would think that it would immediately die yeah. or, over time. But, but you can see these new sprigs of life, of, of, of branches coming out of that seemingly yeah. dead piece of wood. And that's, that is the message of our faith, is that death doesn't get the last word. Death doesn't get the last word. Life gets the last word. And, and because of that, um, I, I really believe I, I'm, I'm able to say that God is not helpless in the ruin of, of, the, of, our, of the loss of our son. Um, God is still working his plan of love and God is still bringing life out of death. You, you may be watching this right now and you're feeling depressed or down or discouraged. You, you may even feel you, you've thought about taking your life and I, we want to say to you, please don't. Please, please don't. You matter to God. You matter to us. You matter to Nikki and Pippa. You matter to their church. There are people who will walk through this with you. Never make a permanent decision based on a temporary move. Yeah. Rick and Kay Warren, you are amazing. We are yeah. such fans and yeah. so grateful to you. We love you guys.